welcome to Nipe Story. This fortnightly podcast brings you audio versions of short story fiction from Kenya and across our African continent. I'm your host, Kevin Mwachiro. And on this episode, we are featuring the story Kaki by David Nala Ekpo. Some time ago, a security guard forced himself on a three-year-old daughter of a resident of the studio flat down the road. The mob that treated his fuck-up were male basketball players who are on their way home from practice. It was the police that saved that man. That evening, the resident trooped to the studio flat where the little girl lived with her mom. The backstory spilled through. Her mom was engaged to be married to the security guard. After that night, the three-year-old vanished, but she has been rumored to visit mom often. No one knows the little girl's name, but we have christened her Sisi Corolla Pekin, and her mom, Sisi Corolla, because she drives a red Toyota Corolla. The security guard also vanished, and so did the gossip and the news about him. Sisi Corolla now wears dark glasses when she drives past and no longer speaks to anyone. At the Christmas of that year, the Sosoliso airplane crash happened. The fire trucks at the airport had no water. Namdi and Obina Okoro, the beautiful sons of one of the neighbors who left to visit their aunt in Abuja, came home as ash. Eleme will not see the golden boys again. The Okoros will never be the same again. I saw because they lived next door. When children died, women would pour out in their lot to the houses of the bereaved to wail out their hearts. I'm sorry were too difficult to say, so wailing was the best way to say, we share the grief with you. How do you say, everything will be fine? How do you know for sure? At Eleme, nobody knew for sure. We only fit the pieces together. But no one expected that only 10 years later, too soon, Adana will bring us back to the Okoros. Adana, she hated that everyone called her Ada Okoro. There is nowhere to hide in this estate, she would complain. Following the death of her elder brothers in the Sosoliso crash and everyone trooping to her house for condolence visits, and they still do sometimes, she became everyone's daughter. Since Adana was a child, her mom, Ma Okoro, would scream, Ada Okoro, from across the road for Ada to be back home. The echo had grown on everybody, and so did the girl. Ada Okoro had grown into be a beautiful, beautiful woman. Her supple skin, a few shades shy of dark ochre, and eyes the light brown of Quili Quili made her a vision. It was ironic that everyone still called her Ada Okoro. You would think she was some custodian of Igbo culture, or that it would have happened to inspire her to be at some point. The babe could not speak Igbo to save her life. Hers was the Igbo of burning bushes. Rubbish. We studied law at the same university. All the five years of our study was showing me who is boss with her apparel A scores, a few points shy of a first class. We went to school together and returned together most times. When we stayed up late to study, she would show me flames, and you'd think that she would get my name right, Okeo Chuku? No. The babe could not be bothered to try past okay. 
Nonetheless, her loyalty to me was more than okay. I did not miss any attendance tick, and if I fancied a girl, Adana got her talking to me. The last time I saw Adana was in the hammer town of two years ago. It was a foggy Christmas morning, and the dust, thick breeze did not care the brand of the petroleum jelly that you wore. It gushed at your lips, it gushed at your calves, it gushed at your face and skin and clothes. Everything cracked and broke and bled. I met Adana midway home from buying bread at the junction. She had creased shawl of burgundy wrapped around her hair like an allergy. Her flowing orange gown fluttering between her thighs and around her ankles. Black beauty, I thought. But I never told her. It would have made her shrug. She was a growing part of everything I decided that a good wife should be. Everyone at the estate thought that we would hit it off towards the end of university or shortly after. However, if none of the two suitors that arrived in SUVs could make the cut, I do not stand a chance. She would never settle for the likes of me. She always called me unserious. You're very unserious, she, she would tease me, in the same pretentiously dismissive manner that a child would say, there is too much ice cream in my cup. That day, we stopped for a bit to chat. It had been quite the Christmas holiday for everyone. Low school was the toast of everyone's dreams. Nothing about the five years we spent at the university mattered if we did not go to low school. We were both headed for the Abuja Low School. It had to be Abuja. As far as we were concerned, no other campus was good enough. That Christmas, it drizzled. The recession got worse nationwide. Adana's father fell through the cracks in a mass retrenchment at his workplace. That Christmas, Adana's mom fell to her knees in front of their house and Adana decided to defer waiting for her low school admission to take up her slot at the National Youth Service. That Christmas, everything changed. Dear Nem, Good morning. How's everyone at home? How are you? I've written this letter and sent it as an attachment through Kay's email. My phone screen got damaged while I was preparing for camp and there was no time to fix it. Daddy gave me his smaller phone to use. The microphone and speaker of this one is bad so that I can only hear crackled sounds when I call. At least I can write you every week from a cyber cafe in Lorin. It could be a lot of words but it will make up for the long intervals of silence. I miss you, mom. The letter for my posting came in suddenly. Uncle Obika and Daddy made me promise not to tell you when we visited you in the hospital as it may unsettle your recovery process. So I figured that sleeping over on the last three days prior to my departure will make my not saying goodbye bearable. It did not. Coming to Kwara is the longest ride I've ever had to embark on them. It is about 12 hours if you add the potholes on the road and the police were holler. As usual, the passengers were cramped inside like noodles, but I got a window seat. The sun rose, held its own and fell in the course of the journey as we rode from town to town. And soon, the pigeons spoken by the roadside hawkers morphed into Igbo, then into a different kind of pigeon, then into more pigeon that I could not understand, then into Yoruba. I think. As we drew closer to Ilorin, 
The traffic began to thin away till our bus seemed to be the only one left on the road. It grew really cold. Thank God I took your Kirikiri star wrapper with me. When we got to Lorin, it was about 9 p.m. and there was no time to waste. It was dark and there had been wars of armed robbery recounted in occasionally loud conversations during the journey. The park we stopped at in Ilorin was too deserted. Our bus drivers stepped outside. There were a few men shouting, Yikpata, NYSC camp, Yikpata, NYSC camp. At the time, the bus was half empty and soon most of the passengers had boarded Okada's in twos and sped off. Bus they come, the Yikpata men said. Soon, another bus like ours stopped and more youth cop passengers dropped. Three boys from there, then there was a girl among them. I was relieved to see another girl, but she stood far off from the rest of us in her green shimmering frock and turban. I was not sure what to make of this. So I christened her Auntie Shine Shine and eyed her in the darkness, vigilant and resentful. It was 11 p.m. when the Yikpata bus arrived. Just that it was not a bus. It was a small vehicle and the driver spoke no English. He only said, Yikpata NYSC camp, Yikpata NYSC camp. We all stuffed our luggage in the trunk and rushed in except Auntie Shine Shine. Madame, nalas moto bidiso, the men screamed at her. Auntie Shanshine would not enter because it was full. Of course it was full. No one wanted to wait for the other bus. That was not coming. At the time, I could feel my knees grinding into each other while safely seated in the motor. Although I was relieved that she had come, I was more grateful that I got in first because the space was over. Mum, do you know that it was only when some people started running towards us that Auntie Shanshine flew into the vehicle that was now struggling to start? We escaped from a raving mad man that night and drove in silence for what felt like two hours to Yikpata. The breeze here is different, Nem. It feels like it never rains. I had to focus on it because the man seated next to me had whispered in his husky, pigeon voice, Caparate as he placed cold sharp metal on my arm, as his rough firm palm pumped my right breast against the revolting jabs of my beating heart. I still miss Namdi and Obina. I still imagine how life would have been if they were still with us. Perhaps, Nem, perhaps, your daughter, Ada. The National Youth Service must have been the easy way out following her dad's retrenchment. My law school budget had gone up 2 million naira for the year of the barest minimum. I had asked her to let me use hers as a guide, and it was practically the same thing. Things will be better, she had said to me when she came over on the eve of her departure. I just can't afford to waste this one year at home doing nothing. I don't want to be another Sisi Corolla Pekin. That girl suffered, though, I said. It changes everything, Ada said. How do you mean? I asked. The publicity that you get from being raped, Ada said. Thank God he was caught, I said. Do you know his name? 
she asked. Um, do you know her name? she asked. Sisi Corolla Pekin, exactly, she said. What do you mean? Here, we never forget the woman's name. Now we even immortalize her mom. We never forgive her for getting raped. And for this reason, among others, obviously, she never really heals. She never really moves on, Ada argued. Are you saying that they should not have been caught? I quizzed. I am not saying that, okay? She said. Then what are you saying? I am saying that it is evil enough that rape happened in the first place. But we are the reason that it never ends for the woman. I'd rather die than be the woman Sisi Corolla is today. Shut out completely because the estate has marked her as the parent of the rape victim and as the reason for the rape even. And her daughter, she does not live here anymore because she cannot live here anymore. The world, once it finds out, never forgives the woman. I'd hate to ever be raped, but I'd rather die than have the crusade that Sisi Corolla has to face every day of her life since the rape. I'd rather die, okay? It was difficult to imagine that some stranger held onto her breast in the middle of nowhere and she was too scared to scream. I wish she screamed. I wish she fought back. But even worse, I wish I was there to fight for her. I would wish I was there every night when the evening news reports on the commencement of the Batch B of the National Youth Service. No one was supposed to know. It was not my place to know. It was not in my place to tell. When migrants make their way across the world, there is no telling the stories that they bring with them. Every one of them is a bundle of mystery, desire, history, fears, and longing. The most precarious migrant in the world are the Nigerian youth coppers, Otondo. Otondo, I'm never sure what it means. They are at the bus stops on the roads, but mostly in secondary schools and the buildings of government ministries. You can tell them apart, and if you do not, they catch your eyes. It is not the stench of the university zest or the spring in their steps that tell them apart. It is their characteristic white shirt, milk green khaki trousers, and the face caps, orange boots sold to the floor in black rubber, and the weave of sweat, mask, and hope. I feel that the milk green khaki is the sexiest thing in the world. It seems to scream, last, last, I graduate. It's like the year-long graduation party that the Nigerian graduates don. Of course, half the sexiness is that one needs to have the body for the uniform, or better still, seem it to fit. The other more important half is that where you wear it to is often a function of fate or who you know, depending on where you stand on the political and socio-economic scale. A fraction of Nigerian graduates have the skill to them to big organization and the capital cities like Abuja. Others have it, let them stay home or skip the year entirely. The rest are pawns of fate who take 12-hour rides or more across the country to places like Hikpata. Eleme, like most of Nigeria, had grown a green haze with the arrival of the coppers that year. A few of them arrived the morning I was heading out to work. Adana must have finished the camp and was being deployed as well. It had been three weeks and her letter still sat on my reading table 
neatly concealed in a brown envelope between pages of my law dictionary. The lights at the Okoro's house have been off for days following the letter's arrival in my inbox. None of their cars were parked in front of their houses as they usually were. Weeks would go by and there would be no chance to meet. They either returned too early or too late. I only got to learn about Mao Koro's transfer to the teaching hospital in Oweri as I eavesdrop on my parents while pretending to watch television. I also learned that Adana had returned to see her mom who was still being hospitalized at Oweri. The whole time her mom had been sedated and was unconscious. Everything was now getting terribly expensive and people had to cut down. The Wi-Fi at home was now being rationed and soon as it was down to three hours in the evening. Soon, the central supply of water in the estate started being rationed, from 24 hours to 12 hours, then 6 hours, then it went out completely. Following this, everyone started depending on the Hausa men who supplied water in gallons or when the tap miraculously came on or when it rained. Adana would have said that the devil had visited the estate and stolen its shine, but she was not here. Her family members were hardly ever spotted. It was as though they had moved out, only that they had not. The law school list had not yet come out. Everyone was growingly increasingly anxious. It was as though those of us waiting had been banished to purgatory. The university had selected a few students for the first intake. Coincidentally, it was rumored that these were only the top A and those students that who were more native to River State while Adana could have gotten on the first list but did not. My chances were thinner as I was neither top A nor from River State. While she deferred her waiting voluntarily till the next season, I chose to wait for the next intake rumor to be a few months away. Adana seemed to have moved on. She now had a different world, a different life. DNM, Kedu, how are you feeling these days? Only a few nights ago, I sat by your bed as your chest rose and fell. You opened your eyes once, and I thought it was only my imagination. I miss you, ma'am. I miss you madly. We were given few days after camp to come home to prepare for a place of primary assignment, PPA. But when daddy picked me at the Port Harcourt Park, he told me what had happened, and we drove to Oweri. To think that I had been imagining downing your Onubu soup for the whole ride from Kwara. I'm back to Kwara now. My PPA is a secondary school in Lorraine town. I've been appointed to teach literature in English. Yuck, I don't like literature in English. I don't like it because no poetry on the syllabus is written by women. Everything always ends up with the boys professing their love to his coy mistress. Does she say yes? Does she say no? Does she ever say anything? At my PPA, I've been given a room here in the staff quarters. The room is green with history and dried algae peeling off the wall. There's a six spring bed, a rusty ceiling fan, and formica top table. The communal kitchen downstairs is shared by 12 other inmates, some of whom have large families. I hate it, but I'm fortunate. Other PPAs did not give their coppers an accommodation, so they are stuck in rundown hostels with funny house rules and curfews managed by churches. Better that 
than the streets. Mom, there are too many men in the building. It seems like I'm the only female who has been posted here. None of the boys are from my university. They're very tall and speak lots of Yoruba and Hausa. While in Lorin is a Yoruba town, my PPA is flooded with Hausa and Yoruba boys. One of the Yoruba boys has gotten too fond of me and started calling me his Yawo Dada. His name is Oladimeji. He's very, very dark. There's hardly a difference between his hair and skin except when he sweats. He insists that I call him Deji. He teaches mathematics at the school. The other men do not talk to me. Unlike Deji, who wears regular shirts and trousers, these other men only wear crisp kaftans and nod at me when they pass by. I call them the kaftan boys. Deji says that they are not very fond of women from the south here, especially where they are Christian. Although I'm not particularly Christian, I get the vibe that I must be quite the bother because I'm not Muslim either. I teach in the senior secondary school. Literature and English is optional. My class is always filled with hijab-wearing girls. It seems that the literature and English in the senior class is always only attended by hijab-wearing girls. They're very brilliant and super curious about everything. I have taught four periods so far, and my class seems to be growing every time. They seem to enjoy when I tell them to imagine that it was Ali who wrote the poem to them. Remember Ali Nuhu from Sitanda, the movie? The dark Hausa who has a squint but stares into the soul. Speaking of dark men in Ilorin, Nem, something happened last week that bothers me. One of the captain boys had taken to visiting one of my classes while I taught. Initially, I thought he was just curious about literature and English. Then one day, he walked into the classroom while I was teaching and dragged out one of the hijab-wearing girls as she screamed for my help. I dashed out after them to know what was happening. The kaftan-wearing boy instantly ordered me back to the classroom. I would not have it. I asked that he release my student, otherwise I would have the authorities attend to his unprofessional conduct. He was enraged and spoke in a mix of house and English, all the while holding firmly to the girl's upper arm. His eyes had bloodened and I was scared to my bones. But I was not going to let him leave with my student. I insisted that he let her go. I may have even instructed. He walked up to me so close I could smell the north on his breath. With one hand, he pushed the girl to the wall. With the other, he pointed beneath my chin as he stared me down. I will show you, bloody Southerner. Wallahi, I will show you. He threatened just before turning away. My class was empty when I got back in. I've laid a complaint to the school authorities. The girl who was dragged out of my class no longer comes to school. Her name is Memuna. No one seems to know much about her, said that she's originally from Kano. I will find her. Deji has advised that I stay clear of conflicts that I do not understand, especially when it involves languages and people that I do not understand. He reminds me that I'm Igbo and that Biafra should have
taught me that the farther away I am from the south, the more careful I should be. I think he's taking it too far. People, especially not captain wearing boys, should neither be allowed to budge into classroom nor snatch children from classrooms. These are utterly disrespectful and a violation of our rights in this country. Nonetheless, Deji insists that I never leave the school premises without him or in the company of other coppers and that I should never stay out late. It is beginning to feel like I live in the church hostels where curfews are at 8 p.m. I'm thankful for being here and them. I'm trying so hard to be thankful, but more and more, I feel that it is not worth it if it keeps me this far from you for this long. Please let me know when you get better, ma'am. I miss you terribly, and I'm so hungry. You can only have so many sausage rolls before they begin to taste like chalk. Get well soon, ma'am. I love you. Ada. On receiving this email, I felt great guilt that I had not yet delivered the first one yet. Was she aware that her letter was yet to reach her mom? She did not say much to me in the body of the email, except that she knew that our chances at getting into law school that year was thin. Indigenes always came first. I would lay awake at the night imagining the Kaftan boys, how their Kaftan looked, how they looked. There have always been Hausa men around us, but the ones in our neighborhood were very respectful and smiled a lot. It was difficult to imagine them as threatening, but to completely rule off the potential of threat would have been naive. Ibos and houses did not start today. Once in my sleep, I dreamt that the Kaftan boy was the one who I violated Adana at knife point on her way to Yikpata. I dreamed that he was speaking Hausa and cutting her up with a knife as she shook in tears, unable to say anything. I would wake up drenched in my sweat and rush to my knees in prayer, part wheeling her back home, part wheeling myself to where she was. I had started staying awake most nights in bed, staring wide-eyed into the dark, completely fed up with my long stay at home. I was running out of pocket money and no one was interested in refilling me. My prayers had intensified. One list had to come out soon enough. The low school list was not forthcoming. The year was nearing being half spent at the NYSC list did not seem like it was gearing towards putting me out of my misery. My days had diminished into doing chores, eating, and sleeping. I was no longer interested in freshening up because it had become a waste of soap and body lotion. Deodorants dried out fast. With all my shakara for NYSC, I was having the shorter end of the stick, while Adana had become some sort of a noir teacher in Ugu Hosa. She had written a few more times. She only had a phone, so she stopped sending letters through me. She only sent me emails whenever I sent fast. She would read courteous. She would joke a bit, no depth about the real stuff, of course. I had been locked out. The distance had begun to take its toll on us. The khaki does these things to people. It takes them very far away. It makes them different. Sometimes it makes them too strong. Other times it breaks them. 
Ekanem, a medical doctor and one of the khaki boys, was posted to the estate clinic last year. The day he arrived, there was commotion at the gate. He had been assaulted even after he produced his documents showing that he was a medical doctor posted to serve at the clinic. He was detained until the chief medical officer came to confirm his legitimacy in person. When one of the security men narrated the story, he explained that it was not so much that this boy walked in, but it was how he walked. Him just enter like madame. He they shake him nyash, 17, 18, 19. They do like woman. Adana had befriended Ekanem a few weeks after his arrival. We met on the bus stop a few times and Adana would always compliment Ekanem's overly jeweled wrist and how he filled the public transport with flowery perfume. Pepper them here, she would scream in salutation, and Ekanem, who was already too extra to take in, would met father into flattering his eyelashes and pouting his lips. This always made my skin crawl. Ekanem, Ekanem was hectic. Adana was in love, and I, I could not bring myself to understand why all of the boys on the planet Adana's eyes only got goggly for his hip-swing, color-popping, Rihanna-singing wahala of a person. Yes, he was a medical doctor, and I learned the only one that children loved at the hospital. But then, the anger of the security men and other boys in the estate could not be salvaged. They had decided that they hated him. They were sure he was some sort of pervert and would not mince their words when they shouted homo to his hearing. Why else would he wear so much jewelry and prance about like a cattle egret when he went to buy his lunch? Ekanem disturbed me deeply. Adana's dad did not like him either. The one day it happened, Madame Dubai, one of the residents of the estate, gifted Ekanem a brand new Mercedes SUV in appreciation for his successful execution of a surgery on her only child, a seven-year-old boy. She also made sure that this gifting was accompanied by a big party at the clinic. This party was well attended by so many parents and children who are residents at the estate. There was so much to munch on. Adana and I went there straight from school. When the time for speeches came, there was so much said about children and how they loved him and how they would let no other doctor attend to them. Two of the security guards at the party, cracking chicken bones behind me, said that soon Ekanem will be exposed for what he truly is. Nothing fit hide under sun, my brother. One day na one day. The other doctors on duty did not seem to please at Ekanem's party. When the car keys were finally handed over to Ekanem and Adana jumped into the car, I saw one of Ekanem's female colleagues rolling her eyes. I told Adana about this, and she said that it is such a shame that Ekanem was not interested. Well, are you interested in him? I asked. In who? In the tooth fairy, I snarled in my peeved sarcasm. Dr. Ekanem, of course. Oh, him, she replied. We are not like that. What do you mean? I asked. It's not what it seems, she said. Well, do you like him? I asked. Of course I like Dr. Ekanem, she said. So, are you guys... What? Hell no, she said. He is well. Um, I am... Well, we are not like that. What do you mean, not like that? I asked. I am different, she said. All this, your English is not fooling anybody. 
I said in my frustration. Everybody knows that Ekanem is a homosexual. You wish he was, she laughed. Her laughter still rings in my head. I remember what she told me just before we parted away that night. I cannot love Ekanem, Adana said. I cannot love men. This was a few months before Ekanem's khaki days came to an end and he returned home to Kalaba. The day he left, Adana cried her eyeballs out. Ekanem kept such a firm face as he held Adana tightly in his arms, his lips trembling, and then he held me. In that moment, I knew that he loved differently. His embrace felt like my dad, like every touch that I trust, that I should trust. I cannot love Ekanem, Adana said. How couldn't she, I thought. A few weeks later, our lives went back to normal. Adana went back to being my friend, beautiful and out of reach. Months into Adana leaving for Ilorin, her family stopped coming home to the house across the road. Soon, beats of the lawn became knee level. Soon, the security lights around the house died. The bread girl at the junction told me that they had relocated to their country home in Oweri. Then, that Monday came when I got the same email three times within the four hours from strange email addresses. It was an SOS call. Dear Mrs. Okoro, good morning. My name is Memuna. Kopa Ada is my teacher. Many people came to her house this afternoon and took her away. The news is all over the school that another copper lady from outside the school is her boyfriend. They say that they found them sleeping together. This is an Islamic school, ma. I'm afraid for what they'll do to her. Please, we need help, ma. Please hurry, ma. Memuna. I noticed the emails only two hours later. I emailed back to Memuna. I introduced myself and inquired as to the details of the whereabouts of Ola Demeji and if she could get hold of Adana's phone. She got back to me an hour later and said that Deji had been fired from the school a week earlier and that Adana's phone was found shattered outside the staff residential quarters after Adana was carted away. In my follow-up email, I inquired as to the whereabouts of the other copper within whom Adana was caught sleeping. I asked about the school authorities and if nobody could help. I asked about the closest NYSC office. I went online and checked for the NYSC office email address and phone number. I sent email after email after email attaching Adana's photo and stating her PPA stating that she taught literature in English and she was a lawyer in the making. I waited. Then I sent the same email a few more times. I did not have airtime. I could not call anyone. And even if I did have airtime, I did not have any of her family members' number. My fingers itched to post it on Facebook and Twitter and tag the hell out of NYSC online. But then, it may just freak Adana out when she is released that I put up a lesbian case about her for the whole world to see. This is not the sort of thing that we tell people, she would say. What were you thinking? I was not thinking anymore. I sent Memuna a few more emails asking for updates. She did not respond. It was getting dark, still no reply. This is not the sort of thing we tell people. My parents did not come home till very late that day. News had come in from Oweri, Mrs. Okoro. Adana's mom had died in the intensive care unit. 
She had mumbled Adana's name a few times in her sleep before she stopped breathing, letting down one last tear. That evening, everyone trooped to the front of the Okoro's house. One of the elderly men announced the death of Mrs. Okoro, but also announced that Adana had been lynched and arrested by the local police. A certain young man had called Mr. Okoro earlier in the day to relay that she had been set up and refused bail. The police would let no one speak with her. We urged to reach out to our contacts in the NYSC in Kwara to push for results. We were also asked to pray for the Okoros, that we all reach out to Adana with love and light. He said that the North is no place for an Igbo girl to be arrested. The air that night was taught with loss and fear and anxiety. People lingered around the Okoros' former residence, unsure of what to do. It was as though we were mounting guard, only that the ones who needed guarding were long gone. Sisi Corolla was also there, standing with everyone else but isolated. It was hard not to think of what the young man said or did not say. How much of the story did Mr. Okoro know? This is not the sort of thing that we tell people. It's four months now, and there's still no news of Adana. There's still no news of our khaki girl. Kaki was read to you by Franklin Sayalel and Ruth Nyakirairo and was written by David Nana Igbo. This is David's second contribution to the podcast with Echo being his first outing on Nipe. David is a doctoral candidate at the Center for Human Rights, University of Pretoria. He's also the author of the Lambda shortlisted novel, Femisile Forever, which addresses the dire state of sexual and gender minority rights in Nigeria, among other themes. He runs a blog titled Letters to My Africa, where he publishes his short stories and essays. Nipe Story is available to download wherever you get your podcast from. And please tell your networks about this podcast. You can follow us here on SoundCloud, on Facebook, we are Nipe Story, and on Twitter, our handle is Nipe underscore story. We're welcoming African short story fiction of between 750 and 4,500 words. Please email us on nipestorypodcast at gmail.com if you have a short story you'd like us to consider. Nipe Story is proud to be part of the newly established African Podcast Fund initiative that is run by Spotify. Thank you so much for listening and Nipe Story is a finger piano production. Yeah.